Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. This is the fourth Sunday of Lent, uh, and, uh, and it, is, it is a Sunday that is supposed to be a little bit of a, a boost of encouragement, because this is about the time of Lent when we get grumpy, right? The uh, maybe cranky. The first couple of weeks, there's a little bit of romance. They're like, yeah, I'm ready for this Lent, right? I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready to give something up. I'm ready. I'm ready to, to kind of nail our hallelujahs in a box for a little bit. Like, I'm, a, like I'm, I'm ready for this. About this week, we're going, this is all dumb, and I just want my coffee back, right? This is, that's sort of what happens in this time, partly because we always have a tendency to take on our piety or our devotion to God with our own flesh. And that's part of what Lent reveals in us, right, is, uh, is the fact that when we're trying to even give up something on behalf of God, we try to do it by our own power, and we get worn out. And this, this Sunday, Latari Sunday, is a, is a Sunday. That's why we're wearing pink instead of purple. Uh, that's, that's, that is saying, okay, we can get through this. We can endure together, call out to the Lord. Maybe, maybe you gave up coffee for Lent, and then you forgot like a week ago, and you've had You've had a gallon of coffee in the last week, and you go, man, I've just blown Lent this year. This is a time to restart as well. Come at it. And you're like, no, no, I thought that I messed up and couldn't go back to it. Well, this you can. I'm just going to just encourage you with that. You can and because Holy Week is, uh, is on the way, and Easter is our true and glorious um, uh, time of finish and completeness in this, uh, in this preparation. So as we continue here in our sermon series, looking at the words that Jesus said from the cross, the traditionally called the seven last words of Christ, seven phrases that he uttered from the cross itself. We are, we are into his fourth statement, Matthew 27. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. So the sixth hour is noon. It's, it's supposed to be high noon, the brightest time of the day, but darkness covers all the land. The sun itself was ignited by the word of God. And here we see even the dimming of the sun, reflecting the grief of all things at the suffering of the source of all life. Nature itself cries out as the creator is dying. Romans 8 tells us that all is groaning as it awaits the redemption of all things, the day when it will be saved from corruption and decay. And here, we see creation mourning. And then for three hours, from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, there was simply weeping and waiting and groaning and pain as Jesus hung on the cross. And verse 46 says, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He addresses God here in a unique way. He calls him my God. Everywhere else in the scripture, he addresses him as father. Here he calls out my God. We understand this by understanding a little bit of the previous things that he has said. The first of Jesus' sayings from the cross was on behalf of the people. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. The second was on behalf of the criminal at his side, 
Today you will be with me in paradise. The third was on behalf of his mother. Woman, behold your son, and son, behold your mother, as Mary was given to the charge of the apostle John. And this fourth saying is out of his own anguish. We are hearing the heart of Christ. Why have you forsaken me? But what is he saying? What does that mean? Why have you forsaken me? The verb to forsake means to deliberately abandon, to renounce or to give up something or someone. It also refers to withdrawing support or protection from someone. So Jesus calling out in this moment, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Has God abandoned him? Left him in his hour of greatest need? What about all the promises of the Old Testament where God says in many places like Deuteronomy 31 and Joshua 1 and 1 Chronicles 28 and many more where he promises, I will never leave you or forsake you. Is God lying? Is the word of God wrong? Abandonment is our worst fear. Some of the deepest pain that we can imagine is when we are abandoned. It causes us to question our own value and our, and our worthiness to be loved. And we all have stories of people who have abandoned us. Maybe it was your middle school, middle school friends who abandoned you at the party for the cool kids. That wasn't just me, was that? Just me. Okay, I'll go to therapy later. Um, or maybe it's something even deeper. Maybe it's a parent who left your family. Maybe it's a spouse or a partner who betrayed you and made vows to you and then left. Maybe it's children who have gone astray. But we all have stories of abandonment. And it hurts. And it's some of the deepest pain that we can know. Although not intentional, my father left my family when I was nine years old. He died. And his loss left a deep wound that has shaped me more than near anything else in my life besides Jesus himself. It has shaped how I see the world. It has shaped how I behave. I tend to be a protector by nature. I tend to be a protector of our church staff and those whom I love and the church planters that I work with throughout the world. Our church planting initiative one of the, 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 the sayings that we say over and over again to church planters is, you are not alone. Because we want them to see that in the depth of their work and in their struggles, and it feels so isolating, that in my heart, shaped by the fact that I was without a father, I want others to know they are not abandoned and alone. The idea of abandonment is multiplied when we're speaking of the moment of death. If I said to you, I hope you die, that's pretty harsh. If I say to you, I hope you die alone and afraid, that somehow seems cruel. As I have comforted many people over the years and their grief over loved ones who have died, so often they say, Dan, we, we're heartbroken, but he or she was surrounded by people who loved him when he died. Or, I've held them when they have cried and said, Father Dan, I wasn't there. I wasn't there when he died. 
The moment of our death is the place where we need the people who love us to be with us. These people who are with us at the end, who haven't abandoned us during our lives because there are plenty of people who have. And most particularly, the moment of our death is where we need God to help us. For the other side of death is beyond our control. Has the Father of Jesus abandoned you at this moment? In this phrase, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Is he proving that God cannot be trusted in our times of deepest anguish? In this phrase, he articulates our deepest questions and fears. Why has this happened? And how many times do we ask why in our lives of God? And have you abandoned me, God? Have you left me in this? I'm suffering and I'm alone and I'm hurt physically in pain, emotionally in pain, relationally in pain. Why have you abandoned me? Well, see, friends, On the cross, Jesus didn't just take our sins, not just the things we've done and left undone, not just our nature, not just a theological concept of the the wrongs we've committed against God, but he has fully entered into our human condition. He is taking on also our sinful situation. We live in a fallen and broken world, a world that is tainted by sin, and so therefore there is pain. There's pain and suffering in this life. And what Jesus took upon himself on the cross was not just the cause of that pain, which is sin, but also our experience of that sin as well. We have a God who knows what it means to suffer. He's not some distant deity managing things and telling us to to keep our chin up when times uh, in times of struggle, or a time, uh, or a God who who cannot relate to us as we struggle because He's divine and pure, and in no way knows the kind of suffering that He that we know. Instead, He stepped into our suffering with us. He knows the pain that our own rebellion has brought, and that the rebellion of others has brought. And that generation of generation upon sin, he sees how it has twisted his creation. And he knows that we will experience that. And he steps into it with us. But but if that's true, then there's this tension of why is Jesus saying, why have you forsaken me? He's asking this question on behalf of us. Because truly all of our questions about God come down to our fear that he exists but might abandon us. Will he be there? Can he be trusted? God is sovereign. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He is always present. But if something bad happens then, did he do it? Did he let it happen? Did he leave us? What What is the answer to suffering? I feel forsaken and alone. Where are you? Why is my child going through this? Why am I going through this? Why, God? Are all these promises of God are never leaving or forsaking me? I feel forsaken in this moment. Jesus knows those moments as well. And these doubts about whether God can be, can be, 
trusted? Whether, what are his motivations? Who is he? Is he here with us in our greatest time of need? These doubts are a result of the effects of sin. Now, note clearly that I did not say that asking God why or if is sinful in itself. God can handle your why. Jesus was sinless, and Jesus asked the question, why? Asking, struggling is not sinful. Sometimes in our struggle, we have this pull in our hearts where where we feel pain deeply and feel abandonment deeply. And there's a part of us that wants to lash out at God, but then part of us that feels guilty about lashing out at God. And there's this tension in the midst of us. And Jesus is stepping in saying, not only do I know the sin that causes this, but I know how your heart feels in the midst of it. These doubts are a result of sin because we are programmed in a sinful world. We know that everyone has the potential to abandon us. And if we're really honest, that we have the potential to abandon anyone else. And the question lingers, is God different? Can he be the only one who is truly trusted to never leave or forsake? If he is, He's worthy of our worship and our praise and our adoration and our teaching of others and all of our hopes can be rested upon him. If at any time he lets us down, then he is not worthy of holding our hope. So which is he? Well, there's something deep here going on in what Jesus is saying. When he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He didn't just make these words up on the spot. He didn't, this didn't, didn't just come out of him He's actually making a reference to Scripture. And he's referencing what, would we, what we would call Psalm 22. So if you have your Bibles, go there. We're going to look at this psalm. Now, in Jesus' day, they didn't have a Bible in book form that had book titles and chapters and verses, you know, with the big numbers and the little numbers. There was no such thing as Psalm 22. And so <clears throat> Psalms were referenced, like any other part of the scripture as well, by their first words. And so the first line of what we call Psalm 22 is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so what we need to understand, and this needs, this should be something that I hope becomes very clear over the course of our time looking at this together, is that when Jesus references this psalm, he's referencing the entirety of the psalm. He's calling this entire psalm to mind. So he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh God, oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Again, we see everywhere else, God, Jesus referring to God as father. Here he's calling out to him as God. He is, he is in the place where he and the author of this psalm, David, are, are parallel in their experiences. David is another man who knew suffering. By his own fault, he hurt people. He had people murdered. He raped people. He misused people. Through fault of his own, he caused pain, and through sin of others, he was hurt deeply when his own son rebelled against him and died in the process. David knew anguish 
And so to articulate his own pain and to articulate our own situation, Jesus is referring to these words. <coughs> Can you hear me that real quick, Jeff? Next week, we're going to talk about Jesus saying, I thirst. I'll use the same oratorical ploy then. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night I find no rest. He is representative of all of us here in our sin, standing in for all humanity. And, and you see him call out, name his pain, and then you start to see the struggle here in verse 3. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. He's struggling. God, I'm, I, I am hurting but I know that you're good, or at least I want to believe that you're good, or, or, or what, are you good? Of course you're good, but, but I'm hurting, and, and he's in this place of turmoil. And so he's trying, to, he's trying to, to relate these two things together. In verse 4, then, he starts to look back. He starts to look at the story of Scripture. The story of the Israelites and their relationship with God was not just some story in a book that, for David. It was the story of his fathers, of his people, of their connection with their God. And he's recalling these stories in his mind. In you, our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried and were rescued. In you, they trusted and they were not put to shame. And so he's looking at the story of redemptive history and saying, there's proof, Lord. There's proof that in their suffering, you have come through for them. But then in verse 6, he says something so powerful that we should be able to relate to. He says, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. His own pain is moving him to a place of going, you, you saved them where they are, but I don't know if I deserve it. Not with who I am, not with what I've done, not with the thoughts that I think, not with the darkness in my heart that I know that I have. So David here, is asking the question, will God meet us in our sin? And Jesus, by referring to these words, is beginning to answer that question. The next few verses start to, to describe David's situation, but we can see that, that God was working through him to foretell the actual situation of Jesus as, uh, as well. Verse 7 says, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. In other words, they make faces at me. They wag their heads. They say sarcastically, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. They're calling to question Jesus and saying, oh, yeah, can, you, can you save yourself? We just, we just talked about this last week where they were mocking him in this way, and they're mocking his trust in God. And David is tempted to believe them. But he's struggling still in verse 9. He says, they mock me, but yet you are the one who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth and from my mother's womb. You have been my God. So he, again, this tension. I, I'm saying this over and over again because I want you to see how your tension in this that you have and will and do experience is not abnormal. And you are not somehow weaker in your faith because you have it. This is David. This is Jesus that are, that are struggling with these things. 
I'm struggling, but you're good, right? But you're holy, but I'm not. And you saved them, but I don't know if I'm good enough for you to save me, right? This, this is a description in the scripture itself of our human condition. Then Jesus, by saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's referencing all of this so that we know that he knows our struggle. He goes on to describe, and I won't go through all the verses just for time's sake, but many bulls encompassed me. We talked about this last week as the Roman soldiers were around Jesus' feet. I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is melted within my breast. When they stab Jesus with a spear in a little while, blood and water come out. His heart, because of the stress and the pain and the physical um, beating, the sack around his heart filled with water. Jesus literally died of a broken heart. We see it here in the scripture. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt. Dogs, and dogs encompass me. But you, O oh Lord, do not be far off. O oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. So he's calling out in the midst of his pain. And then there's this, this amazing shift halfway through verse 21, that something has happened here. Almost like David wrote the first part of the psalm and then came back later and wrote the second part of the psalm because the tone of things start to change. He says, you have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. You have rescued me. There's something that has happened where deliverance is taking place. And David then starts to talk about his own testimony. Verse 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offering, offspring of Israel. Why? Why this change? Why is David all of a sudden going from, are you there? Why have you forsaken me? To everybody praise him. You, you need to praise him. Let me tell you about him. Why? Because in verse 24, he says this, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. David is giving his own testimony here that God did, in fact, hear his cry, that his first question, why have you forsaken me, is actually proven to be incorrect, that God had never forsaken. As much as it felt like it, as much as the circumstances around made us want to think it, as much as the pain in our hearts has clouded our minds and our judgments, that, it, that as much as we think and experience what we think is the absence of God, that God has not forsaken us, but that he hears our cries in the midst of our pain. And this is true primarily and ultimately in Jesus Christ. No one has suffered like Jesus has. Oh, I'm not diminishing your suffering or my suffering. We've been through it. But none of us have left the glories of heaven to take on flesh, to be scorned and rejected by our own creation, to lead a sinless life and yet be crucified on the cross in significant pain and anguish while carrying the sins of the world upon our shoulders. We've never suffered like Jesus has suffered. And God did not abandon him in his suffering. And we see this three days later, at the resurrection. Did God forsake Jesus upon the cross? No. He was with him as he endured the suffering and the pain 
And the glory that came out of that suffering and pain is the defeat of death itself. That the ultimate victory for Jesus and the ultimate victory for the world came through the suffering and pain of Jesus. Our God is a God who redeems. He does not forsake. Now, we still live in a world that is sinful, and we still are sinful people, and so there will still be pain and suffering and sickness and death, and we will still cry out, why? Why has this happened? But what Jesus is showing us in the ultimate act of suffering and sacrifice and of love and of calling out to God the Father is that God does not forsake us even when the sins of the entirety of the world are upon Jesus. God does not forsake him. How much more will he be with you when you carry only your own sins? The resurrection is the ultimate expression of God being with us in our darkest moment. For our darkest moment is death itself, and it cannot stand in the presence of the redemptive God. David goes on to say, from you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who hear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. So David is saying, yes, I've endured significant pain and suffering. But in the end, God has been faithful and he has shown how he has been with me all along. And now my, even my suffering has meaning as I get to go to others who are in pain and suffering and say, God is with the afflicted. He, you who are hungry will eat in the house of the Lord. You, you will know the presence of God. Just as David leaned on the story of Israel, just as Jesus reflected on on David remembering the story of Israel, we can look upon Jesus. And all of this is, is example and witness and proof and testimony to the faithfulness of God. And not only do we look to the scripture and to the people in the scripture, the others who can share this testimony are the people who are sitting around you and me. I know many of your stories, and I know that you have stories that involve deep and utter darkness and great joy in God and his people. I know others are in the place waiting for that redemption that you're right now in that place of affliction and pain and that place of wrestling of going, I'm trying to keep my faith, but I'm really struggling right now. And friends, these words from Jesus on the cross are for us today. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is only the beginning of the psalm. The end of the psalm shows that he has not indeed forsaken us, but that he delivers and he redeems and he makes purposeful our suffering. It is not in vain. Paul goes so far in Romans as to say that that the suffering that we are experiencing today is not even worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. And we know pain, and we know suffering, and if if we know the depth of that and how hard that is, how much then if the converse of that, the glory that that will be revealed in us is that much more greater? It's not even worth being compared because our God is a God who redeems. And your suffering matters. And you are not alone. As David finishes up this psalm, he says, in verse 30, posterity shall serve him. In other words, the future generations. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. 
This is hope passed down. And the fact that we are gathered together in this room, hearing these words thousands of years later, as they have been fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, prove that this scripture is true. We are the people yet unborn that are hearing the testimony of God that he has done. That God, that David remembers the work of God throughout redemptive history, that Jesus says the hope that David was looking for is found in me, and that we can look upon Jesus himself to say we are the people now who know this hope and this joy. There's a glorious hope for the future and a glorious community for us to be able to live in as the church together as we endure the brokenness of the world and then speak into it to say there is a there's a narrative of sin in the world that says that everything is falling apart and breaking and there is terror and there is brokenness throughout the world and there is pain and there is fear but that we get to speak into that a message of redemption and hope and this friend is why the very gates of hell tremble at the christian gospel because no matter what they do, no matter what is brought and wrought upon this earth it cannot shake the goodness and the redemptive victory of Jesus Christ on the cross and his empty tomb at the resurrection. And therefore, our hope will never spoil or fade. This is what we find in the person of Jesus Christ that the world cannot take away. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Ends with the concept that we will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. He has not forsaken. So in the midst of your pain, in the midst of your struggle, in the midst of your worry, in the midst of your, your anxious and anxiety looking to God and saying, why? Why am I suffering? Why is my child suffering? Why is this person that I love suffering? Why is the world like this? It's okay to call out to him that way. Because he knows he's been in it. He's, he is Jesus who has walked through this in the same way that you have. But let us follow the example of Jesus and rely on Scripture for a different narrative, one of faithfulness, not abandonment. Let us rehearse the promises of God, just like David knew the story and lived it and spoke it into his whole life. This is why we have over and over and over again to remember the promises of God. This is why we share this meal of hope that is a meal of community for today and a foretaste of the wedding supper of the Lamb that we will sit at when redemption has come to completion. This is living hope that we live into even in the darkness of our days in this world. And then Jesus, as he endures the pain and struggle with God's help, chooses to trust him. There is a faith and an act of will that is involved to trust him. And that's part of what faith is. Sure, you can find facts that would say something else, but where are you going to put your trust and your faith? At some point, we have to trust. We have to make that choice to trust God himself. And then what we also see in David here and, and Jesus referencing is that in the midst of our suffering and pain, not even before we get to the place where we've seen the redemption of God, but that we worship him. We call out in the midst of our struggles and we worship him. And we say, yes, we are feeling the effects of abandonment but that abandonment is not from you, O oh God. And so we're going to worship and long for and look to and sing about and cling to the only thing that will never leave us or forsake us. And that is God the Father through his son, Jesus Christ. 
in the work of the, the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. We worship as we war against sin in the world with a new hope. So friends, I pray that you will take this from Jesus' saying on the cross. We're in this together. You, me, as the church. Jesus as our Savior who has endured the sufferings of the cross and has entered into the victory that awaits us. You are not alone. You are not forsaken. You can be a people of great hope and joy because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Pray with me. Lord, our suffering is deep and real, and sometimes it feels that our that our suffering is, is more tangible to us, more immediate to us than you are. Help us, Lord, to see your presence amongst us, to see your presence in the other people of our church, to see your presence as we recite the, your truth of Scripture through our liturgy, as we, as we press with our teeth the visible gospel in the sacrament where we come together in a foretaste of your heavenly kingdom. Lord, let us see you around us and let us know that when we are tempted to feel forsaken, that by faith we know that that is not the case, but that redemption is in Christ. And let us have strength and patience in affliction and give us an unfading joy and hope in you. And let us, Lord, bring this hope not only to our own lives, but to the lives of others that in your name the world may find strength and those who are starving be fed and those who are lonely put in prison. And we pray these things in your name.